0: Hey, everyone. My name is Nick Gibson. I'm one of the pastors here at High Point. If you don't know me, hey kids. So for the last few weeks, we've been um, doing testimonies based out of the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going through the book of Ephesians as a church right now, where it says that um, one of the things Christ has done by saving individuals is making them into one new humanity and putting aside the walls of hostility between us, right? And so we've had a number of testimonies where people have talked about the walls of hostility they've experienced, And how they think Jesus is moving forward or working in their lives or working in our church to try to put away those walls of hostility. Most of them up until this point or up until last week have been based in ethnicity or being international or of different language or something like that. Those kinds of walls of hostility. Um, This week is on people who have in their lives given service that have put them in relationship to the extreme worst things of human experience. Um, Charlie is a combat veteran, but this category would include people like police officers, um, prosecutors and counselors that deal with the worst crimes. Um, some firefighters have had these sorts of experience. People have seen the ugliest things and have dealt with them so that a lot of us just don't have to. And sometimes we spend time complaining about them or um, misunderstanding them or not appreciating them or ascribing um, things to them that's, that are really unkind. And sometimes it's just we live flippantly when they've seen terrible things and so um, Charlie's testimony is kind of about that experience so please listen to him and then we'll we'll pray about that together Charlie
1: Uh, hello High Point good morning morning. morning. first of all I'd like to thank uh, the pastor and Jill for helping me put this together without their help it would have been impossible my name is Charlie Pinozzi and Corporal United States Marine Corps I say this because once a marine always a marine I am also a combat veteran I was sent to be a replacement for a unit that had been completely wiped out. I was in a special forces unit of about 10 marines and one Navy corpsman during the Vietnam War. Over nine intense months of my tour, we did some of the most secret and dangerous work our military did in that conflict. In those months I spent in combat, I saw many horrifying things that are burnt in my mind forever, like videos that can't be erased, I have put friends' intestines on stretchers next to them. I have seen people burned alive in front of me. I have performed tracheotomies with rusty bayonets and a pen on men who had no face left to aid an airway. I have had brain matter on my boots, and I've seen good men go insane from the stress. My unit, as far as I know, is one of the few that operated extensively at night, and the night belonged to the enemies of all kinds, The jungle was ominous and deadly with poisonous snakes, hungry tigers and spiders so big that if you shot them they would bleed. When we couldn't get supplies, we ate roots or snakes or whatever we could find. We never ate any tigers that I remember. By 10 a.m. it was so hot my lips would crack and bleed and sometimes my tongue would swell so bad that I couldn't swallow. Some Marines were even caught in flooding from heavy monsoon rain and drowned. Add in enemy tripwires, mines, ambushes, I felt like death could come at any moment from anywhere. Yet this stressful duty seemed to go on and on. I feel that it was an honor to serve my country, but that doesn't change what experiences like that do to you. They change you forever. Some call it a moral injury or an injury to the soul. But have you ever heard this talked about in a sermon or on Christian radio? People like me who have experienced horrible and traumatic events in the service of others feel like we are part of a forgotten club. It feels like we are out of place, even among people for whom we received our soul's greatest scars. Because some of our most important experiences are things we shouldn't and don't want to share. Our dividing wall feels something like a hospital curtain. A way to politely conceal our pain for our own privacy and the comfort of others. That doesn't mean my experience in combat ruined my faith. For me, it strengthened my faith in many ways. I know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, kind of in a way that David knew him as a warrior in battle. He protected me from death and injury many times. I've stepped on mines that didn't go off. I was shot at at point-blank range and missed, but the tree behind me was shot in half. Yet when we thought of coming home, my officers would tell me, be careful what you say, because people will not understand. Those of us who didn't listen to him found out that he was right. When I got home, I spent hours standing in a shower. I think I was just trying to cleanse myself somehow. How do you explain that to someone? So to, ease, to put ease uh, in others, we shut this all in. But for us, it is always there just under the surface. Can you see how challenging it could be for a combat vet to fit into a church setting? How isolating our experience? How different our perspective? Can you imagine how we feel when people complain about schedules or needing to volunteer for one hour a month? Or what we think when people complain about the people and professions who risk their lives to keep us safe? We know what it's like to be on the front line, the firing line, and many of us came home to people who misunderstood us and demonized us. Even though adjusting to a peacetime environment has its challenges, I have always felt that High Point Church is now my home. Here I find rest, refreshment, and sound teaching. People here accept me for who I am, and they even say they love me. What a great place to worship. Still, the harsh reality of combat and trauma takes a toll on all of us. We are fighting the curse, the flesh, and the devil. We all have our Vietnams, the death of a loved one, divorce, enduring illness, constant loneliness, children who break our hearts, addictions, and sins that beset us. You can feel like you're dead even though you're walking. I believe this church could become as much as a hospital as it is a place of worship, and that we can become wounded healers in the process. But first, we must bring our wounds, our fears, and our sins into God's healing light. This must be done in a safe and understanding environment. We must strive to be gentle with one another and not a place that shoots its wounded. In the war, we did everything we could to save even men we knew that couldn't be saved. It wasn't our job to decide who could be saved. Jesus intended us to be like this, too. His healing comes when his safe place is also an honest place. I found this here at High Point Church, and I'm encouraged that we are trying to grow in it together. Thank you.
0: Um, For those of you who may be in those kind of helping professions or be a combat veteran yourself, Charlie actually has some training in ministry and is a very open person. You do have to speak up for him to hear you, but he's a really loving guy. You might choose to saddle up to him and talk with him if these are some of the same struggles that you have, too. Let's pray together. Lord God, we want to be a place where people from every experience, who've been shaped by every human hurt and difficulty and work and service and duty, can be fully embraced in the family of God, can be loved, can not experience a dividing wall of hostility. Even, even if it's a dividing wall that's like a hospital curtain, it's just, it's just there for politeness, but it still divides and allows and keeps people from each other. God, we pray that you would make us a people in a place who realize that people fight great battles and some people have to face the worst, most ugly, the darkest, the most disgusting things in human life. And many of them do it out of love for us, out of a deep sense of moral duty. And so Father, we pray that you would help us to not be flippant in how we respond to people who are in the military, who are in the, the dangerous helping professions like firefighters and police officers. Even as we strive for things like racial reconciliation and racial equality, help us to do it in a way that encourages people into the noble helping professions that um, respects and honors people who face the worst of humanity to keep us safe. Help us to do it in a way that that both groups feel heard and loved and cared for and supported, so that we really can become one new humanity out of the two. We pray that that this place, we can't fix our city, but we, God, please help us to take responsibility that this place would first be a place where you are making one new humanity out of all people not just ethnicities and races and languages and sexes but also people of extremely different experiences and especially even very painful ones we pray in Jesus name amen
2: good morning high point you may be seated thank you worship team good morning my name is femi shikoya i am one of the elders here at high point church And I'll be reading the scripture for today. The scripture for today can be found in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. This can be found on page 1778 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 4 starting from verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then I urge you But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, you will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord written for his people.
0: Hey everyone. It's good to see all of you. One of the sayings that we have in my household is, I don't do for kids what they can do for themselves. My kids are kind of used to it by now. I say it, they just start to groan immediately. But I say that to kids that are visiting the house too. I don't do stuff for them either. I say, I don't do for kids. What they can do for themselves. And you would be surprised what kids will do for themselves or realize they don't want very bad when you tell them that. They can be very resourceful. If you're just night, you know, you gotta say it firmly but lovingly. You got to be there in case they need a little advice to move forward, and sometimes they're a little destructive. That's why I don't have nice things, right? But they'll get the job done or they'll realize they don't want to do it themselves, and so they don't want it very much. It's fine. One of the reasons why that's important is because we, as parents, can try to help kids grow up. A church can help kids grow up. Nature, like biology, can help kids grow up. But at some point a kid needs to decide they want to grow up. Right? Because if everybody tries to grow a kid up except the kid, what you get is like a big narcissist. You know what I'm saying? You get a big jerk. Like, they have to decide they want to grow, right? Now, why do I say that? Is it, do I just want to rant about today's kids? No, I was like that as a kid too. My parents treated me that way. What I, but the point of the passage is this. This passage is that God wants us to build ourselves up in Christ. God wants us to do it. He's doing it. He wants us to do it. It's your job to build yourself up in Christ. Now, you in this context is plural. You, plural. It's your job, plural, to build yourselves up, plural, in Christ. All right, now does the Bible say that? Isn't that sacrilegious? Doesn't, doesn't, don't we believe that God does everything? Everything's from God. Everything's to God. Everything's God. You have to let go and let God, and that, you know, you just, you're supposed to credit God for everything. So how can you say, how can a pastor say, God wants you to do it? You need to build yourself up, right? Well, the reason I say that is because that's what the Bible says. That's what this passage teaches, right? Now, in the last service, I preached about the first half of this sermon. And so I'm going to kind of go through the first half pretty briefly and spend more time on the second half so that both of them can be put on the internet and people could get the whole thing. Okay? So the first thing this passage tries to make clear, I think, is that um, Jesus' victory has given us what we need to build ourselves up. Okay, so if you look at the logic of this passage, it looks a little like this, okay? In verses 7 through 10, right, it portrays Jesus as this conquering hero, and the spoils of his victory are the people he's released from captivity and all the gifts, the, the wealth of spoils that he has won for himself that the, he then gives to the people he's freed, Right? And out of that metaphor, it says in verse, verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And it's also why it says in verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it in some measure. Does that make sense? Now, then it goes on to say that So God, so Jesus, this conquering hero, gives everybody grace. Some of the grace that he gives is that he gives this five groups of people that he terms apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. Right? And then it says that these people equip the saints for works of service. Now, it's important to understand the difference between work and equipping. Okay? Okay? So Charlie was talking about being in the military. At some point, usually in the military, especially if you get shipped to combat, you get through your basic training, and then you have to go to the armory where they give you equipment. You get the big backpack, and the body armor, and the weapon, and I don't know, compass. You get a bunch of stuff, right? And you can't fight without that equipment. And that equipment cannot fight without you. But who's going to do the fighting? Not the guy in the armory. You. Does that make sense? Same thing for any job. I mean, most of you have something you need to do your job. It's your equipment. You need to be equipped. You got to have that stuff. And then who does the job? Not the person who built your laptop, right? Or sewed your shirts or made your shoes. The person who does the job is you. Does that make sense? So these people don't do the works of ministry. These are the armorers. They're the tailors. They're the motherboard solderers of the kingdom of God. Okay? They equip God's people for works of service so that the saints can build up the body of Christ, which is interesting, because who makes up the group of people called the saints? Everybody who's a believer is a saint, right? They're counted holy. That's what the word saint means. It means the holy ones. You're counted holy in Christ when you put your trust in him. You believe in him, and he counts you holy. You're his holy ones, right? Now, who's the body of Christ? The body of Christ are all the people who belong to Christ, right? Right? They're the same group. Do you see how they're like the same group? Now technically, the body of Christ can grow in numbers because new people can become holy ones or be part of the body of Christ. But they're essentially the same group. Do you, see, do you see the argument? The saints are building up the body of Christ. What is the body of Christ doing? It's building up itself. You see? Now in verse 16, it says it more explicitly. It literally says, "Builds itself up as God causes it to grow. L- explicitly says that. Does that make sense? Now the point of this, the body of Christ being built up, is so that we can do two things together, mainly. One is that we can grow in unity and that we can grow in maturity. Now, this is important because um, those who have parented kids up through into adulthood know there's a lot you can do for a kid. There's a lot you can do for a kid. But in the end, only that kid can choose to get along with other people and only that kid can choose to grow up. You can do a lot for them so much. And you can tell them to grow up a hundred times. It's like that saying, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You know what I'm saying? I tried that once, and it's a true statement. It turns out they think you're trying to drown them, and they retaliate with horses. You just, you got it. you can bring them, but they gotta drink. You know, they have strong necks too. You just trust me. Okay? So, just like that, we, you, the church, the body of Christ, Jesus is holy ones. We have to decide to grow up. We have to decide to be united. I can't tell you how many times I've been in counseling with two people who are fighting each other, and I can tell them a hundred thousand times that if they keep just fighting with each other, instead of trying to understand each other and love each other, they're going to destroy themselves and each other. You can tell me that a lot of times. But until they choose to be unified and mature, you're going to get nowhere. Do you understand? And you see, Jesus knows that about you. Jesus has done so much for you, singular. And Jesus has done so much for you, you plural. He's done so much for us. But there are a couple things he either can't or won't do because by the nature of the thing itself, we must do it for ourselves. Does that make sense? And those—two of those things are maturity and unity. And we can't live into being the body of Christ without those two things. Does that make sense? And then the result of that is two things. One, we won't be destroyed by being blown around by every wave of teaching. We won't follow the wrong people. You see, it's fairly easy to deceive one person. It's harder to deceive a group of mature people who are unified with each other. Way harder to deceive, right? But then secondly, the body of Christ will grow up into the head, who is Christ. Will be truly the body of Christ. we Will grow up into the thing. Remember the first verse of chapter 4? As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be the body of the one who is the head. See, that's the whole point. All right. Second thing. Jesus has given leaders to equip the saints. So one of the ways Jesus has intended to build up the body of Christ is by giving it a certain group of leaders with certain kinds of graces in order to build up the church. Now on one level, the leaders are just used as an example of the grace God gives to everyone. So in verse 7 he says, right, each one of us, but to each one grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So what he's saying to every single one of us is, you have received a gift of grace that is something, an unmerited favor, of a certain kind of spiritual wealth that you've been given from God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls it a spiritual gift. But either language works. It's a certain kind of spiritual wealth. Part of the plunder of his destruction of the kingdom of hell, he's given to you, and you are the steward over that wealth who is now free. What are you going to do with it? Right? And then he says there's these people, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now a lot of people would recognize those people are spiritually gifted, right? So, for example, some of you might be here, and you might think you've been coming to High Point for a while. You've seen me do the, pe- the preaching thing. And you might be like, you know, well, Nick is spiritually gifted. God has given Nick a gift, right? And if you come here, you should probably think that, since you're receiving a lot of your spiritual teaching from me. But in some sense, I'm just an example. The point is, they're like, you see, you think Nick has a spiritual gift. Right? He's just an example of the grace that God has given in some portion to everyone. If you think I have a spiritual gift and you're a Christian, you have already conceded that you have been given spiritual gifts and spiritual graces that you can use for the unity and maturity of the whole body of Christ. Because we're supposed to build ourselves up, right? Okay, now High Point Church is the sort of church that has people from everywhere. we're sort of like this vaguely Bible churchy, loves Jesus, but we're not like a denominational church with very specific things. So we basically get refugees from everywhere, okay? So we get we get people who were secular or un, non-believing, and we get people who were Roman Catholic and didn't like something about that, or really charismatic, or like fundamentalist Bible church, or like something Baptist where you couldn't wear pants, and like all kinds of different people. Or, you know, they just moved here and they just come here, and so people have all kinds of different ideas about how Jesus has set up the church, right? And how these five groups of people like fit into it, right? So we have some people who are like from Charismaticville where like the five-fold ministry, these five offices are like everything in the church. And like you are a better pastor if you are more of these five things. Like it's literally called the five-fold ministry. And really good pastors, like super pastors, function in all five. Right? Like it's like I've literally said, you know, you should— co- I've heard people say to me, you should come to our church because our pastor functions in the whole five-fold ministry. Which is pretty impressive. And like, it's not like that can't happen. Right? It's not—God could give as many gifts to one person as they want—as he wants. And if he wants to give all five, he can. And if he wants to make that person a pastor, why not? Surely—I'm sure there are churches that have pastors that are apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. You just don't go to one. (laughs) Right? But the point of this passage is partly the diversity of it. God gives— Jesus Christ, the conquering hero, gives the apostles to the church. And he gives the prophets to the church. And he gives the evangelists to the church. And he gives the pastors to the church. And he gives the teachers to the church to equip them to build themselves up. The assumption in the passage is that they're all a different group of people. And they're all fu- they're all gifts. They're all different gifts to the church. All, they are the group of people who mainly function with the grace of equipping. Does that make sense? They're often fairly impractical people. I mean, if you get to know pastors who are like really good teachers. Oh, prophets are great too. People who are like really good prophets or apostles, like people who like start stuff. They're like super visionary, but they can't tie their shoes. You know, and you're like, they can't make tea. You know, it's just too hard to cook that stuff. They're just, I mean, they tend to be like, they have these great ideas. They have all this stuff going on in their minds and they're super visionary and they can be inspiring and teaching and helping and clarifying. But like, they have a tough time with their lawnmower. You know what I mean? Well, my, my, one of my pastors, Doug Pennington, had a professor at seminary, and his car wasn't working. And Doug was from a really mechanic, blue-collar background, and he asked him to come help him with the car. And he, he went, and he, like, checked a bunch of stuff. And he finally turned to the professor. He said, is there gas in this? <laughs> the guy had run out, he'd run out of gas. It hadn't occurred to him that the reason his car didn't work, but he was one of those brilliant New Testament professors he'd ever studied with, Right? Am I make just making excuses for myself? Okay. <laughs> we got one yes. Okay, good. Okay, so what I want to do, because we're all from different backgrounds, I want to clarify what the Bible teaches these five offices are. Okay, the office of apostle is something something like this. An apostle is one who is sent to do a work or teach content that is distinguished from a disciple who is a learner. The New Testament has the apostles and then other references to apostles. Okay, so the word apostle in English is just the is just taking the Greek word apostolos and turning it into like English letters and making it an English word. It's called, that's called transliteration. You just write out the words in your language and you just make it a word in your language. So in a, an apostolos or an apostle is somebody who is sent, which is the opposite of an akalutheo or a disciple, somebody who follows. So those who follow— And then there's those who sent. So when Jesus got all his disciples together, his akalutheos, his followers together, and he designated twelve of them apostles, that is, these twelve were the ones he was going to send out of the ones who followed. Does that make sense? And so in the Bible, there is a group of the apostles, the apostles, the twelve, right? That is a non-expanding group of people, right? Because not only are they sent ones, But they are distinguished in that they walked with Jesus the full time, and they saw him in his death and resurrection. They are personally eyewitnesses of the events of our redemption. And so, we receive their writings as the word of God written, as fully trustworthy. And we receive them, therefore, as scripture, right? The writings that we follow and trust authoritatively. However, the word doesn't simply just mean that. It means somebody who is sent for a purpose, who brings a message. So for example, in the end of Romans, he says, greet Andronicus and Judas, who is almost certainly a woman. My relatives, who have been in prison with me, we don't know if they're literally his relatives, or if they're like, because they were in prison together, their family. It's, it's not, it's, it's, we're not sure. Okay. They are outstanding among the apostles, and were in Christ before I was. Right? So these two people who are clearly not part of the twelve, our apostles. Now also, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, "'Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord.'" Do you see the argument he's making? The Corinthian church that was not created by one of the 12 apostles, right? The apostle Paul went there. He's not one of the original 12. And so he started the Corinthian church, and then he left and sent other people, right? And they taught them, and they liked them better. They were better speakers. They were cooler. I don't know what they were, okay? And so the Apostle Paul goes back to them, and they're a little resistant to his leadership. They're like, well, maybe you're not a real apostle. Now what the Apostle Paul does not argue is, listen, I saw Jesus. Because he could have said that. He could have said, listen, Jesus knocked me off my horse. He blinded my eyes. He told me to follow him. He said he was going to send me to the Gentiles. He commissioned me to be an apostle. I am an apostle. That's not his argument. He says, listen— The mark and seal of an apostle is that they start something new, spiritually. They go out to to preach Jesus, and people believe, and they start a new work. So he's like, the fact that you exist is proof I'm an apostle. How can you say I'm not an apostle when your existence is literally proof that I'm an apostle? That's his argument, which means this. An apostle is somebody who is sent out to take the message somewhere else, and who starts a new work. So what we call them now is missionaries, usually. People who go on a mission to take the gospel in a place that's not already rooted to do a new work. Sometimes we call them church planners, too, right? People go out and they start a new work, right? They go by faith. They don't already have a bunch of people supporting them. They may leave all the comforts of home, and it's, it's first in this list because it's a big deal. It's a huge sacrifice. In 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul says, listen, I feel like sometimes God has like put us on this procession of where we're like, we've been conquered and beaten into submission and dragged behind some conquering hero. Like that's what it feels like to be an apostle. Okay? It is not fun. He's like, but I do it because I love you. I do it because it must be done. I do it because Jesus must be known. And so in the church, there should be a great celebration of people who God has moved and led and inspired to do this kind of work, okay? The second is prophets, and um, a simple definition I can give you for this is that prophet is somebody who speaks the words that God leads— I like to use the word intuitionally— into the immediate moment that can be distinguished from teaching, which is the stewardship and reapplication of previous knowledge that you work out through deliberation. Okay, so like human beings have like sort of two faculties of how they think. Some psychologists said fast thinking and slow thinking. There's like the, I kind of know it intuitionally right now. I don't even know exactly how I know it, but I know I know it, and I know I know I think it's right. And then there's the sort of like you think through something. You're like, well, if this is true, and that's true, and I verify this, and this is right, then this is… Right? Deliberation is, when God speaks through deliberation, we call that gift teaching. Right? God is working in somebody who's working through things, and they come up with something to say or to teach on the basis of that, right? We, that's, that's how I experience it. I, I, I think I have the gift of teaching, right? Some people will feel like God is saying something in the present through them in the moment that they're supposed to say and that they're supposed to share with people to build them up and to help them. That's called the gift of prophecy. Now listen, there are a number of these intuitional kinds of supernaturalist, sort of weird gifts that are in the Bible. Speaking in tongues, like literally being able to speak in another language for prayer or to build people up. Um, discerning of spirits, knowing like intuitively, immediately if something is good or evil, or if there is angelic or demonic involvement in it. Um, word of knowledge, just knowing stuff you're not supposed to know, and being able to tell people so that they know God is present, so that you can encourage them and help them. And prophecy is another one, knowing what should be forth told to other people. Now, some people believe that that was something that just kicked the church off, and then stopped when the Bible was fully put together, because we didn't need it anymore. Okay? That view is called cessationism. That view is wrong. Okay? Um, the, 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 The clearest teaching in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul has spent chapter 12 talking about these spiritual gifts, and chapter 14 about how to test those spiritual gifts, and chapter 13 about love literally is about how to love using spiritual gifts. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 exists is to teach you how to love, be loving, because there's lots of ways not to be loving with spiritual gifts, right? He's like, look, you can have incredible spiritual giftings if you're not loving. Dude, you're just—you're just, you're ruining everything, okay? So find some humility, and let's do this in a loving way, okay? One of the things he says is this. He says that these gifts—he says, right now, our experience of God is like seeing in a dim mirror, like a Mirrors in the ancient world were polished metal. They weren't glass. So like you could kind of see what you looked like, but you, it wasn't super great. Right? He said, we, we, now we see like in a mirror dimly. Then we will see face to face. Right? Right now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but then we'll know fully even as right now we're fully known. Right now, listen. The Bible is fantastic. Okay? It is the word of God written. It is exactly what we need in this moment of travail and curse, to fight sin, death, and hell, and to trust in Christ in all the ways that we need to, okay? This book will be irrelevant in heaven, okay? Like, if if you think we're going to be sitting around reading the Bible in heaven, like, you don't know what heaven is going to be like. Like, what we read about in here, we will have immediate sense experience of in heaven. We will see, we will touch, we will, we will know as well as we are known by the omnipotent mind himself. Okay? This is going to be like marriage in heaven. It's a great thing. It was super important. It was part of redemption. We will think of it in the past as something that was so critical, but this will be over. We will be worshiping the one about whom this speaks and the place about which this speaks. Do you understand? And so this is not knowing as you are fully known, okay? Now, the cessationist argument requires that interpretation. It's an impossible interpretation. What it means is, these weird, supernatural, strange gifts that make you feel uncomfortable will be in the church and are the gift of Jesus Christ until he returns. That's what it means. I know some of you are kind of terrified right now, right? listen, they are very weird, okay? They're definitely weird. But the Bible literally says not to treat prophecy with scorn and not to forbid speaking in tongues. It literally says that right in the Bible. I think it's in 1 Thessalonians. So you might be like, well, what what are we going to do it? What's going on? Okay, listen, we're not very good at it, okay? But it's a problem. It's a problem. Because we say we believe the whole Bible, right? And so God is going to gift some people and he's going to speak to them intuitionally and they're going to feel like, there's a message like burning in their bones that they need to, they need to share. And we need to be open to it. Now the Bible explicitly says the elders are supposed to judge prophecies and make sure that they're correct and like that they're not false teaching, that they're not deception. Because it's very easy to be self-deceived, right? But it's not—like sometimes people pretend like it's just prophets who get self-deceived and not teachers. You don't think I can read this book and have a personal emotional hobby horse that I can persuade myself is in it and then teach it like it's Bible truth? Come on. We can all deceive ourselves. All five offices, every Christian can deceive themselves. And so we, you, you can't despise prophecy just for that reason. Part of following Jesus is opening up your intuitional self to the leading of God. That's part, part of what it means to keep in step with the Spirit. To be open emotionally and intuitionally to what God would want you to do. Right? And prophecy works within that realm. Um, it's also important in a church that has only male elders, which High Point has, because in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 11, women are encouraged to give prophecies in the gathering of the local church. It's, it's, it's like they're like, they're like women, do this, right? Women and men. And so if you have a church where there's no place for people to share these intuitional messages from the Lord, judged by the elders, and you have male elders, and elders do all the preaching, who never talks? Women. It's a problem. It's a problem, right? So anyway, prophets. It's a real thing. If you think you have that gift, we have people who could talk with you about developing it. We should be open to it. It's not ended. But listen, there's a lot of wackiness. Okay, there is. That's true. There's a lot of speaking in tongues wackiness, and discerning spirits wackiness, and prophecy wackiness. But listen, there's a lot of teaching wackiness and pastor wackiness. There's all kinds of wackiness. So we have to be discerning and mature and unified to receive this equipping and for it to build us up. Okay. Oh, sorry. Evangelist is somebody who is gifted and trained and specializes in preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel with others. Now, um, that you might feel like, oh, whew, there's somebody to do evangelism. Thank God. Okay. Now remember, these are the equipping offices. What is that evangelist supposed to be doing? teaching evangelism. There's, that person with that gift is supposed to be training the whole church how to do evangelism so that we can do it, right? Because no evangelist can access very many people. Cultures try to clamp down and eliminate the places where you can share about Jesus. The only way large groups of people can really learn about Jesus is if every individual person is openly and wi- open and willing to share and growing themselves, able to, like— reason with people and share the hope that's within them. Does that make sense? And so evangelists do evangelism, but they're also really there to equip us for evangelism. The fact that they exist means we're supposed to do evangelism. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to do evangelism. And when churches don't embrace those people, churches are always poor at evangelism. If you don't let these people annoy you, you will do the other stuff. Everybody wants to be shepherded. Everybody wants somebody to care about them. Oh, pastor, thank you for calling me. That's so nice, right? But it's people like, you know, Mike and Vince are probably the people on staff that have the strongest direct gifts of evangelism. They annoy the heck out of me, because I'm a teacher. Like, I want to read and like be in my office. And, and they're like, we need to go tell people about Jesus. And I'm like, oh, you're so right. Oh. <laughs> you need people to like annoy you with their gifts. Otherwise, you just become narrow And then, when you become narrow, everybody else is a caricature. So what don't you have? Unity. And when you don't have unity, where do these people with these gifts go? To other places. And then what don't you have? Them there to equip you. And so who becomes spiritually impoverished? You do. Right? We don't embrace people with the gift of prophecy very well. So where do you think they go to church? Not here. When Gene was the church administrator, and we had Vince— we were like, we were killing it because we had like, I was teaching and Lloyd's pastoring and Mike is, I don't know, he's probably apostleship or something. And then Vince was like the evangelism gadfly and then Gene was like prophetic girl and we like had the five-fold ministry, right? But now Vince is in wherever he is in Kentucky and like, you know, Gene works somewhere else and now we're just, I don't know what we are. We're just crazy. right right, we're working on it. Okay. Pastors and teachers, that might be one category, might be two. We won't get into the Greek syntax of that. Pastor just means shepherd. They shepherd people in the right direction. But why is pastor there? In order to what? Equip people to pastor. Right? So in, in some way, do you know who does that? Erin Hesse. That's her big job. Small group leader, director. Teaching people how to lead small groups. That's kind of what she's doing. She's trying to help us learn how to pastor each other. You so know, she's not a pastor. That's not her title. But she's one of our main equippers of pastoring. Right? Pastor Lloyd does this too. Works with the deacons and the elders, visits people, but his job is to train people to pastor people. So when, like, Lloyd sends somebody to visit you, or comes or brings somebody to visit you, and you're like, you shouldn't be like, oh, well, I'm in this ugly robe in the hospital. No, it's his job. He's supposed to be equipping that other person, that's why they're there. That's why he had that person call you, to equip them to learn how to care about other people. Does that make sense? Okay, we gotta keep moving. Great. I'm gonna skip that. So this is a complicated slide. It's worth thinking about why God would do this. Why would God make this, like, five-fold ministry thing? What's the point of that? It's worth thinking about how those gifts work together. Now, the reason I have this slide that you can't read in time is because if you go to highpointchurch.org slash sermon notes, the, the PowerPoint or whatever this is, is always there. And so you can go read this whole thing and argue about it in your small group. Okay. And this one, too. But we're gonna keep moving. Okay. No, literally, go to the internet. They're in there so you can go to the internet and read them and discuss them in your small group because I just can't go that in depth in the sermon. One of my views as to why the Apostle Paul talks about them this way is I actually believe that the reason why these five are mentioned is the main reason is because these are not local ministers. That these five groups of people who had this office of ministry in the church were itinerants. That is, they didn't stay in one location, but they traveled around to different churches equipping them right? So in the first century, right, if we were a church, we wouldn't have Lloyd or Mike or me or any of these people, right? What would happen is we'd have like this guy and that guy and that guy. They'd be the elders and we'd just be the church. And there's, and the elders are pastors are bishops. That's just, that's the biblical church government. And then what would happen? You'd be like, well, how do they get any better at doing ministry? Well, periodically an apostle or an evangelist or a prophet or a teacher or a pastor would be sent to us, right? And they'd spend like a month with us. And we'd have like tons of meetings at, like, we'd be at people's houses. We'd stay up all night learning. That's, that's how it's done in China right now. I don't know if you know that. In China right now, that's how it's done. You have these little groups of people. That, they don't have a pastor or anything. They just meet together. And then somebody will come who's a teacher or a, or an apostle or something. And they'll come and they'll meet all night long for like three nights. All night long. They'll go to work. They'll stay up all night long learning about Jesus. And they'll be in this tiny little room, and they'll teach as much of the Bible as they can teach in like three days or two days or one night, and then that person is gone. And then it's just you again, right? This thing we have going to like big church, pastor, celebrity, blah blah. That's not what this is talking about, right? Uh, Now we've tried to incorporate that in High Point Church as we've worked right? We've tried to give a lot of money, as much as we can, to missions to send out as many apo- people with apost- apostolic missions as we can. Sending people to places where Christ is unknown, right? And then we receive them back, and they talk up here sometimes, and we celebrate them, and we encourage people to go to missions, and we encourage you to give to missions because we believe that the apostolic ministry should be non-local. They, they need to go, right? And they need to come back and support us, right? And tell us what they're learning, and, and help us grow, and equip us. And the same thing for people in prophetic ministries, which we don't have anybody to send out because we're not great at that. But in the realm of teaching and pastoring, like, for example, Minota Oaks Church, like, we've been preaching in their pulpit for a few months, right? We've been going over there, and I've gone to other churches and preaches. preached. And if our church, I think, followed this model more, it would look less like I'm Mr. Fivefold Ministry. Listen, everyone, I'm going to move into prophet now and then apostle. It wouldn't feel that way. It would feel like I was gone more. That's what it would feel like. That's what it feel like. It feel like, like, Lloyd's never here. Where's Lloyd? Where, Lloyd's never here. Well, he's been preaching in nine other churches and supporting them and training preachers and, right? Where's Mike? Well, he's starting this ministry that's going to be in like seven counties, and he's raising money from this place and that place to make the blah, blah, blah happen, right? Where's Nick? Well, Nick's in India again with Manohar, and they're traveling around preaching to blah, 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 blah. That's what it would look like to really live out this five-fold ministry. And it would look like you being ready to receive people working in these ministries to equip you because you believed the work was yours. That this is your church under Christ, that the ministry is your work to do, that we don't— like experts are great seasoning. They're bad meals, okay? Well, I've never eaten one, um, literally, but just like you don't need a lot of experts. It's our job to love each other. It's our job to serve each other. It's our job to care for each other. That's called being a human. Right? We don't need a lot of me yelling at you. What we need is a lot of us cooking for each other and loving each other and talking with each other and going places together and being there when we need each other. And then inviting new people into that. Does that make sense? All right. How are we doing? Okay. I'm still not doing very well. Okay. Three. That is, Jesus has given his saints the ability to build up the body. So one of the things you'll see in this, in this verse, okay, so— Verse 16 is the culmination of a lot of stuff in this chapter. The apostle basically restates his whole idea of ministry that he's been talking about for 15 verses in this 16th verse. Now, what you see on the screen is my translation of this verse, and it's a very literal translation of the verse. The intention is to show you kind of what it's doing that it's hard to pick up on in the NIV translation, okay? And that's this. It starts with, it says this, from whom, which is Christ, obviously in the context, the whole body being fitted and held together through every— the most literal, literal translation is ligament of provision or joint of provision. According to the working power and the measure of each individual part makes the body grow, building up itself in love. So I want you to see three things. Who is making the body grow? Who's making the body grow? Who thinks—raise your hand if you think this is a trick question. Right? It is definitely a trick question. Okay. In the sense that the answer is all three things referred to. Right? So on one level, from whom? Right? So on one level, it's Christ. Right? Like in chapter 1, verse 20-something. Right? He's like, he's the fullness. We are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, who's the fullness of what the fullness? Everybody's the fullness. Okay? Right. Christ is the fullness, and we are the fullness. Because he fills us. And so he's the fullness, and we're the fullness. If you just say, Jesus is the fullness, Jesus is so fantastic. That's a problem. You've got to then say that you're the fullness too. Because if you think Jesus is the fullness, you don't think you're the fullness, you're not going to embrace the responsibility of being the fullness. Right? But if you think you're the fullness and not Jesus, that's a bigger problem. In a way, because you're like, well, I'm just, I'm fantastic. Well, you're the fullness because he's the fullness. Right? And so he says, from whom, that's Jesus. Okay, so everything that happens in this verse is because of Jesus. Okay? Because of whom, the whole body, being fitted and held together. So Jesus is the one who who picks all the body parts and figures out where they go and puts them all together. And this word actually means keeps them held together. So he puts them together and he holds them together. That is his explicit part. He's already done that. You're already here. Okay? Okay. You and I need to quit believing that he did it wrong. Well, we don't—I wish we had a cool pastor. We we had this for a worship leader. I wish we had the blah, 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 blah. I wish so-and-so was more caring, and I wish blah, blah, blah was smarter. Listen. Jesus has done two things in his providence and choice. He has put us together, and he has done what's necessary to keep us together. And he's done. Okay? He's done. Now, then it says, through every ligament of provision— Okay, so Greek only has a couple of words for stuff that ties things together. Okay, now in this context, he's what he's saying is like, he's like the body is fitted together, and then there are all these things in the body that tie the body all together. And you need those things or the body kind of falls apart. So you could call those joints or ligaments. It's the stuff that ties it together. And he says that tying together is a provision, right? There's something that he's provided that kind of functions like that. Um. New Testament scholars are a little split on this, but I think the majority, and I think they're correct to to say, this is a reference to that fivefold ministry. That these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers function kind of like ligaments, right? That they, they, they're in these key places, and they kind of pull all the systems together, and in doing so, they provide a necessary function, but ligaments are nothing by themselves. The work is still done by the muscles, and the bones, and the systems. Right? That's where the, that's where the horsepower is, right? And so he's saying, he's saying, I've provided all these ligaments of attachment, which these, these itinerant people who are going to all the different bodies and teaching them all and keeping them all unified. See how they're ligaments of attachment and equipping, right? And then it says, but it's all done according, where's my thing? It's all done according to the working power or the natural way something works— in the measure—that is the amount that you were given—of each individual part. Okay, one of my pet peeves is when people pray and they say, God, please bless each and every person here. And it's not because that's a bad prayer. That annoys me because it's linguistically redundant and I'm pedantic. Right? Like, I'm like, each each and every is the same thing. If he blesses each person, literally by definition, he's going to bless every person. Right? Right? It's just, it's built into each. So say each or say every, but just pick a word. <laughs> right? And listen, if after hearing that, you pray each and every in front of me just to annoy me, I deserve that. Okay? <laughs> it's totally fine. All right. But do you, I want you to notice, in Greek, each of these words have their own Greek word because the Apostle Paul is saying each and every. So apparently there's biblical warrant for it, right? So it says, in the measure of each individual part. It literally was like each one every part. You see the point there? The point is he's saying every single one. He's overemphasizing that you are needed. I don't care what age you are. I don't care what you think the measure of your gift is. I don't think, I don't care what you think you've done to disqualify yourself from the use of it. Like, listen, I don't care what you're banking on To alleviate yourself of the spiritual destiny that God has given you, it does not—it doesn't work. It's an excuse. It's not a reason. Because this is what he says, to the measure of each individual part, but it's these individual parts that make the body grow, building up itself in love. So you see the emphasis of the verse is who is doing this? Well, the emphasis of the verse is the body is building itself up. Do you see the point? Think about your body, right? You get hurt. So I smashed one of my toes a few months ago, and my, my, um, my toenail came off. And I was like, oh no, that's not good. Right? And I didn't really know how toenails grew back. I thought they'd kind of like grow from the back again, or I don't—maybe they'd reseal or something. If they don't, they fall off, and then your whole nail bed just like grows a whole new nail kind of all at once. It was my first experience with that. And I was like, I'm like Wolverine, baby, like I'm regenerating. This is amazing. It, like— and I, I did not spend one lick of mental effort on that. I didn't, I didn't meditate and be like, nail bed, nail bed, nail bed, like new nail, like, right? And I don't, like right now, I'm not even thinking about trying to not go to the bathroom. Like I'm just not going. <laughs> like my body does that automatically. Like I have to make it stop doing that, right? Like, and like when I caught myself, my body just automatically is like, ah, right, we need to heal that. Like, nothing is coming from the head consciously to say breathe at this rate and heal that thing and make the circulation go and make the lungs breathe and d- like all this stuff just happens. Does that make sense? But in my mind, so to speak, my head does tell my body to do a lot of things. Does that make sense? Do you see where this metaphor is going? It's actually pretty close to the spiritual reality. There are a lot of directions we get from the head, a lot of actions we do with our physical power, based on what our mind is telling us to do. But but the unity and the maturity of our body is all working on its own. It's all being built up by itself. The body itself grows in and with itself. Right? And so, that's a really important thing for us to understand. Because it's very, it's very easy if you believe very strongly in God, And you believe very strongly in his word. You believe very strongly in the reality of his spirit. To think about spiritual things in what you could call like a monocausal way, just like there's one cause. And so you'll say things like, well, God, did God do that? Or when you pray, you'll just say, God, please do this. Right? And, And that works in certain very limited situations, right? So like if you have a physical ailment or something, and you, and I pray for you, and you receive healing, right? And you would be like, God did that. God did that. Yes, yes, but you had to come to church and you had to present yourself for prayer, and I prayed for you, and then God healed you. So even in some of the most direct ways in which God works, there's still multiple causes. And God—see, like we are scientific people, right? We live in—now, you might not be like, think of yourself that way, but we live in a scientific age. We want to—we want to erase all the possible variables. We want to look at a very simple process. Well, this caused this caused this, right? Like, listen to any news show. They think they can talk like that. They're like, well, the reason the economy is like this is because blah, 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 in 1982 was the blah, 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 blah. They don't freaking know. They have no idea. They have no idea. These things like economies and bodies and consciousness are so multi-causal. They have so many reasons why they work the way they do. You can tell a story about how this leads to this leads to this, and it's a nice story, and it might sell on like cable news. It's not true. You're leaving out 170 causes, and God made the world that way. Okay, you believe in a God who made a world in which most of the interesting things and important things have a bazillion different causes, and you can't isolate all the causes. It's one of the reasons why you have to obey God, and you can't make up your religion for yourself. Right? Like, people all the time are like, well, I just—I'm going to believe the stuff I think is true, and I'm not going to— like, great, except— the world is infinitely complicated, and you're really not that smart. And so, like, God can—see, you can be a literal infinite genius if you will do what an infinite genius tells you to do in an infinitely complicated situation. But if you won't listen to the infinite genius, and you're in an infinitely complicated situation, you just make it up as you go along, you basically look like a dork. Like Like, you have no idea what's going on, and you're bumbling your way through the whole mess. Right? But you see, what God wants you to do is to live and play the part you've been given. He wants you to obey him out of love. To realize what he's given you is wisdom. That is, the fitted knowledge for the specific and particular situation in which you find yourself and to receive the gift of his grace. And in doing so, you can live in a world with more causes than you can ever imagine. Right? And you can realize that you can live with multiple causes and still ascribe everything to God, know exactly what you're responsible for, and know what you're supposed to do. Which is what you need for peace. Which is what you want. It's not a fake peace. It's true peace. Unless you think real means you must have infinite knowledge, that's not possible for a human being. Right? And so If you and I will believe, if we realize that there's a million causes for anything, why is it so hard to believe that what causes the growth of the body of Christ is Christ himself? And what causes the growth of the body of Christ is the ministry of the leadership graces that God gives to these fivefold ministries. And what causes the body of Christ to grow is that the body of Christ builds itself up. But of those three, what is the emphasis on? It's on the third. It's on the third. Why? Doesn't the Apostle Paul want us to glorify Jesus and to believe in Jesus? Yeah, of course he does. What he wants is for us to believe the thing that we won't believe, which is it's on us, too. And that in the way we act and behave and believe, we need to realize that if I want God to change my life, I need to start listening to Brian. That's what has to happen. I need to show up to a small group. I need to let somebody explain a Bible passage to me that I don't understand. I need to sign up on this like mission trip thing that I don't understand, but that people are encouraging me to go on. I need to go with a, for this friend to the school and help kids learn to read better. I need to stop and talk to somebody after the service and really listen to them so I can become less self-centered and they can share their heart in a way that helps them. I need to engage in friendship or marriage or something. The body of Christ builds itself up. God wants us to build ourselves up. Which means you can't do that apart from the local church. The local church is simply other believers together. You can't do any of this without that. You can't do it if you believe in just single causal everything. Well, God did it or God didn't do it. That's very naive. But that's the way people think when they're not part of the local church. Because they think they could just be them and God. That's literally the opposite of what the Bible says. God will not function that way. He refuses to function that way. Why? Because kids have to embrace at least two things for themselves, unity and maturity, and you can't do that with just you and God. You have to do it with the imperfect, annoying people who think differently than you in these pews of the local church. And he demands it. He demands it, right? He wants you to love your leaders, and he wants you to be his that way. Does that make sense? So one of the ways that he draws us together in that way to grow in unity and maturity is this ritual we call the Lord's Supper, or communion, which is where we declare that the death and resurrection of Jesus has bought us for God himself and removed the dividing wall of hostility between us and God, and in so doing has created this thing called the body of Christ and removed the dividing wall of hostility from between us. So if you're a believer, you should participate in communion or the Lord's Supper. If you are not a believer, participating in the Lord's Supper is an act of the worship of Jesus the Christ. So, you probably shouldn't, unless you're willing to acknowledge and worship Jesus as the Christ of God, the Savior of the world, and the maker of a new eternal kingdom. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Fathers, we um, come to take this, this ordinance that you've called us to do. Help it to grow us in unity and in maturity. Help us to acknowledge you in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to to see ourselves in humility with each other. And help us to anticipate what you've promised us. In Jesus' name. Amen.
2: In Christ alone My hope is found He My light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, far through the fiercest.